Merry Christmas! Good to see you all this morning, nine days before Christmas. And this morning we're in the middle of a five-week series in the Gospel of Luke on the story of Christmas. Next Sunday will be the fourth of five messages, and then Christmas Eve service on Tuesday the 24th, right here at 7 o'clock, our annual Christmas Eve candlelight service, will wrap up our series on Christmas. But that doesn't mean we're out of the Gospel of Luke. I hope you like the Gospel of Luke, because we're going to be in it for the next six months. Because we're actually going to just keep on going through the entire gospel and we're not going to quit until we're finished. We're going to go all the way through all 24 chapters of the gospel of Luke. But this morning we want to look at Luke's gospel, chapter 2, the first seven verses this morning. The first seven verses. And since there's only seven, I want to take the time to read these verses this morning. You know, these are verses that are very familiar to us, but I'm hoping and praying that especially at this Christmas season and even today as we read or we hear these verses, that we will read them with fresh eyes, that we will hear them with fresh ears, that we will say, God, I don't want to just hear this again Lord, without it truly making an impact of what was happening and what was going on, God, transport me back 2,000 years ago and, and let me begin to, you know, smell the smells and, and feel what it felt like and, and, and begin to experience and put myself right back there at the very first Christmas. So with that, here's what Luke writes. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to register all the empire for taxes. This was the first registration taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Everyone went to his own town to be registered. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to the city of David called Bethlehem because he was of the house and family line of David. He went to be registered with Mary, who was promised in marriage to him, and who was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I'm just going to start off this morning by saying there is no way I can do justice to what was happening here in this passage of Scripture. I don't think any of us can, but, but I'm hoping that we will at least capture maybe a little bit more of what was taking place in and around the birth of Christ at this time, again, to allow the wonder of God and the wonder of Christmas once again to just really fall upon us this year. I want to first remind us that the God of Christmas is the God of history. He's the God of history. The reason why Luke takes so much time in the first couple verses to, to basically set the birth of Christ and what was happening in historical context is because our God, 
intersected time and space. In fact, our religion, the religion, the faith of Christianity is the only religion where that happens, where the God that we worship literally comes down into time and space and not only comes to us, but becomes one of us and comes for us and lives here for a time. The God who eventually would have a couple year long ministry, which culminated in him, God, going to the cross and dying for our sins. Three days later, rising from the dead, and then 40 days after that, ascending back to the Father in heaven with the promise that he would come and receive us to himself so that we could spend eternity with him. It's the only God like that. Amen. And Luke wants to remind us that history is his story, that he is writing, and he wants us to be a part of his story, not just of history, but of his story. That's why, again, he reminds us of Caesar Augustus, that he was the ruler in Rome at this time. And let's just for a second, not to get too historical, but many of you know I'm a history buff, let's be reminded of who Caesar Augustus was. First of all, that's a title for who he is. His real name was Octavius or Octavian he was the grandnephew of the great Julius Caesar, the one that we recognize probably as the greatest of Roman emperors, but actually, I believe that Octavius probably did more to expand and, and provide a, a, a good place for the Roman Empire, at least for those within the Roman Empire. It was under his rule. Octavius is that, that they experienced what's called the Pax Romana, the, the Roman peace, that there was more peace over the Roman Empire during his reign than any other time. There was more expansion during any other time. And Julius Caesar must have seen something in his grandnephew, Octavius, because he was the only one that was left something in Julius Caesar's will. So that's Caesar Augustus. Then you have this guy, Quirinius, the governor of Syria. Again, Luke wants us to understand this really happened. And this happened at this time and at this place. And that, there's a reason for that, you see. And that it can be verified. That it's verifiable that you can go back into history and you can check all these things out. That's why when people question my faith and question the historicity of it all, I say, well, all you have to do is go back in history. Amen. You, you can find Jesus and all that surrounded him outside of the Bible if you want to. Amen. Jewish historians, Roman historians, it's all there if you're open to it, you see. And so the first thing we see here is that the God of Christmas is the God of history. We also see in this passage, though, that the God of Christmas is the God of action. I want to direct your attention to three words that really bring this about, and then more that are the result of those words. 
The very first word of chapter 2, verse 1 is the word now. It is a word used to describe an act of God. And then down in verse 6, the phrase, the time, while they were there, the time came for her to deliver her child. This is a phrase that is used to describe God's actions emerging from eternity and now manifested in time. In other words, again, it reminds us that God had a plan, a plan of action, a plan that he had designed all the way back, the Bible says, from the foundation of the world. And now, now God says is the time to act. As Paul says to the Galatians, now in the fullness of time, the Son of God came into this world. God had a plan and he was following that plan, but it shows that he is a God of action. He didn't just stay up there in heaven and just, you know, sort of yell down to us in some way by a heavenly megaphone, hey, I love you guys down there. Ah, uh, too bad, man, that, that sin thing's really got you guys all twisted and stuff. You're, yeah, so sorry. Well, I'm God, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to stay. No. No, he, he didn't just tell us he loved us and, and, and told us how compassionate. No, he, he came down. He's a God of action. And notice here that when God moved when God said, now's the time, that everyone else moved. You see that because when he moved into the mind and heart of the leader of the known world at that time and said, hmm, I'd really like to start counting all the people in my empire. And he did that actually for two reasons. One, the Bible says is because he wanted everybody to be registered because money, taxes. But he also did it for the military, the his, history tells us. Two reasons, money and military. That's why he wanted to count everybody in the empire. And so he comes up with this. And it was all part of God's plan. And God said, now. And when that went into effect, notice what happens, verse 3. Everyone starts to move. Everyone went to his own town to be registered. So Joseph also went up. Everybody moved when God moved. That doesn't always happen. But here's one thing that you and I can take from this. Our God is a God of action. And God is still moving. In fact, God is here this morning wanting to move and act and work right here in this auditorium today. Amen. And God is hoping that there will be some of us who as he moves and works and does things that will move with him, that will respond to him. Because we know down through history, there's times where God wanted to move or did move, but human beings just sat there. They did not respond. Because God won't make us respond in that way. He still allows us to have that free will. But there does come those times in his story 
where God will move in such a way because he's sovereign, and we're going to get to that in just a second, that everyone moves to the movement of God whether they even realize it or not. Amen. God is a God of action. And I hope that as God is moving and working and doing things in our life, that we will always be a people, both as a church and as individuals, that will be willing to respond and move to the movement of God. Because God's always acting. He's always working. He's always moving. In fact, Jesus said this to his followers one day. In John 5, 17, it's recorded there. He says, my father is working until now, and I'm always working. Jesus never takes a day off from acting and working and moving in our lives. He's simply hoping that we'll be right there with him, willing to respond and move and work and act along with his promptings and leadings and guidance and direction. He's looking for those like Joseph and Mary that are willing to respond to his movement. But then there are times where God is writing his story and says, everyone's going to move to my moving whether they're conscious that it's me moving them or not. Which leads me to the third point. Not only is the God of Christmas the God of history and the God of action, he is the God who is sovereign. He is in control. And what you see throughout these seven verses, if you don't see anything, is you see the providence, what we call the providence of God, where God is behind everything that happens. Regardless of whether men know it, recognize it, are conscious of it, or not. And let's start with the top. Let's start with Caesar Augustus. No one on earth more powerful than that man at this time in history. Ruler of the Roman Empire, the empire during this time of history. He had the power. He has the armies. He has the prestige. He has the rep. He has everything. And yet, he is simply being used by the God of the universe to accomplish his plan, you see. And God is not violating Caesar Augustus's free will. Our God is so great that he's actually using the desires of this man to accomplish his will. Because he knows that Augustus will be all about, hmm, my empire's getting rather big and large. I want to count people, and I want to count them for money's sake, and I want to count them for military's sake. And God said, that will play right into the plan that I've had since the beginning of the foundation of the world. Amen. You go, Augustus, and you will never know that as you sit there in all your pomp and circumstance and glory in Rome, that you're being used to accomplish my will. I am the sovereign God of the universe, and I'm in control. And my plan will happen exactly as I said it would, you see. A couple things about that. One, 
That's why God works. When you talk about God working and moving and being active, that's why God works and moves and tries to act in our life so that we will get to a place where instead of us needing to be in control or wanting to be in control, that we will relinquish control to him, the only one that really has control. Because God understands only one of us can really have control here. And if you and I as human beings think that we can have control over something, we're barking up the wrong tree, as they used to say. Right? That ain't, it's not going to happen because there's only one that can have control over anything at any one time. And God is the one who's always in control. And God is simply looking for people that trust him enough to go, right, God, you're in control. I'm going to let you have that. I'll manage the things faithfully that you give me to manage. I will control the things in a sense that I can control, but there's so much outside of my control, I trust you for it. And that's why God, again, is like, you're not even in control when you think you're in control because only one can truly be in control. And that's me. I'm the sovereign God who's in control. He uses not only Caesar Augustus, he uses the governor of Syria. Because as Luke points out, this was the first registration that was taken. There were others that were coming, but Luke again wants to set this into a solid historical context so that it can be checked out and so that it can be verified. And we know because of this, that again, everybody had to move in the empire because everybody had to go back to the, basically their hometown where they were born. So it caused all this movement. I mean, there were, it was worse than the mall nowadays. <laughs> there were people moving everywhere. It's worse than all the highways around Phoenix. Everybody was just moving, you see. And they moved down to Joseph's Hometown, the town of Bethlehem, verse 4. Which, by the way, means house of bread. And I think there's a connection in several ways to this and, and significance to this name. Again, because... God, 500 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, spoke through the prophet Micah and said to the people of God, as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are insignificant among the clans of Judah, from you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, will emerge a king who will rule over my people Israel, whose origins have been from the distant past. Micah 5, 2. 500 years. But God made sure Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem, you see. All part of God's sovereign plan. I don't think it's an accident then that Jesus actually was laid in a manger, which we know is a feeding trough for animals. It's where they were fed. Because later on, when Jesus grew up and had his three-year ministry on earth, 
one of the things that Jesus declared is what? I am the bread of life. The one who feeds from me will never be hungry. So where do you find bread or food? You find it right there in the feeding trough. And what better place then to be born than the one who said he was the living bread than in the house of bread, Bethlehem? All part of the sovereign plan of God. But God wants us to recognize that the God of Christmas is not only sovereign because of his control, he wants it to bring comfort to us. That's why surrounding, you know, the story of Christmas as well as so many other truths in the Bible, God attached comfort to his sovereignty. He's like, people, if I'm in control and I'm ruling and reigning and I've got a plan and that plan is going to be followed and you can trust me with my plan, then why are you so upset? (laughs) Why are you so stressed out? Why are you so full of angst and and so full of worry and care and concern? And why is your blood pressure so high? And why are you having all this, you know, panic attacks and all these different things? And why can't you sleep at night? And why are you going through that? If you trust that I am sovereign and that this plan is going to work, then trust me and my plan. And rest. And be comforted, knowing that nothing is going to happen outside of my purview as God. I've got it. I've got you. I've got this. I've got this universe that I created. And it's all moving towards my plan and what I have set up and how it's all going to even end. So just trust me. And if you can trust me for the greater plan of the universe and of this world and of this earth and of every country on this earth and every leader of every country and all of that, then you can trust me for you. Amen. And just like 2,000 years ago, let's also be comforted by the fact that God is sovereign over those in power. I think even we as Christians forget that sometimes by the comments I hear other Christians make. You see, according to the Bible, there is no one in power that gets there unless God allows it. There is no one that stays in power unless God allows it. There's no one that is removed from power unless that is accomplishing the plan of God. Just like Caesar Augustus, because here's why. God can use anybody, even those he doesn't know, to accomplish his plan because he's sovereign. He doesn't need just people who believe in him to accomplish his will and plan. He can use people that don't believe in him like Caesar Augustus to accomplish his plan. He can use anybody or anything because he's sovereign. He's the Lord of hosts. He's in control. And that's why understanding Christmas and what what happened at Christmas and what happened surrounding Christmas is so important because it reminds us that God is the God of history, that God is the God of action, and that God is a sovereign God. But also, as I've already stated, the God of Christmas also here is portrayed as the God who is trustworthy. 
Let's go back to that prophecy in Micah 5 too. 500 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, God said through the prophet Micah to his people, this is where the Messiah will be born. He will be born in that Bethlehem. And that's why he was so specific, because that wasn't the only Bethlehem. So that's why Micah said, it will be Bethlehem Ephrata. There's only one Bethlehem Ephrata, six miles from Jerusalem. Right there it is. And 500 years before, God said, that's where Messiah will be born, and that's exactly where he was born. And so God is saying through fulfilled prophecy, that being just one of them, if you can trust me to fulfill my word that I spoke 500 years before it happened, can you not trust me for anything and everything that I've told you out of my mouth? I can be trusted because it's going to happen exactly as I said it would. And time has no bearing on it. It doesn't matter how short, between the time I said it and the time it happens, or how long it is. It can be thousands of years. If it was 500 years between predicting Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the Messiah, okay, so it's been a couple thousand years since Jesus promised that he would come back. It makes it no less truthful. Because my Jesus doesn't lie. And when Jesus said, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I'm banking on that one. Amen. I have no doubt. I'm just looking for the day. Because God is trustworthy. We not only see God being trustworthy in where Jesus was born and the predictive prophecy that came about through the prophet Micah, we see him being trustworthy here to this very young couple, again, who was very, very young. Mary, maybe 13, 14, at the most 15 years of age. Joseph, maybe a little bit older. But here's this young couple leaving their home in Nazareth, going down to Bethlehem. She's pregnant. And yet, even though there's not much God is overseeing this young couple and, and making sure that they have just whatever they need. And again, it's not much. It reminds us that the first Christmas is all about simplicity. There's not a lot of stuff to drown out what was really going on there. Which, sad to say, is sort of the opposite of, especially us in America, what happens many Christmases is there's so much stuff that the real meaning and the real person of Christmas sort of gets left to the side. And yes, you and I, <laughs> this is not the plan that we would have chosen, right? But God said, speaking of his sovereignty, my ways aren't your ways. <laughs> my plans aren't like your plans. Because if we would have developed a plan for the Son of God, the Lord of glory, to come in, into the world, I mean, yeah, why not choose Rome, the capital of the world at that time, instead of some obscure little town like Bethlehem? And why not wrap that baby up in a, a gold blanket with, you know, 
heat and, and all the, at least 2,000 years ago, all the comforts that the Roman Empire could provide. And, and why not send that baby through the streets of, of Rome with all the, a big parade and the pomp and circumstance of a great king? Why, God, allow him to come in such a humble, obscure way? Well, I do not pretend to know all the mind of God of why he chose it that way, but I'll, I'll say a couple things. When you contrast the two kings that are, are given to us in this passage, which king would you want to be under? Would you want to be under Caesar Augustus, who obviously in the world at that time had everything? I mean, he was the mover and shaker in the world, or would you want the king that comes as a humble little baby without anything? I mean, literally laying in a feeding trough for animals. Is that, is that the king you want? But, but here's the thing. The king of the world at that time, Caesar Augustus, wouldn't have given you or I or most of the people in his empire time of day. He would have had no time for us. We would have had no access to him. He had more important things on his mind than you and I. But that baby, because of the way Jesus, the Lord of glory, came, God was showing us, I've got space and time for anybody and everybody. And because of the way I came, that means I'm accessible to everybody. There's no, there's no, I'm only here for, for people of a certain, you know, uh, academic status and, and, and monetary uh, bank account and, and, and they have to have this much and all. No, no, I'm here for anybody and everybody because I'm just coming as a humble little baby. And God took care of Mary and Joseph. They didn't have much, but they got by with what God provided for them. And God made sure that he looked out for them. Not only the fact that even though Bethlehem was so crowded that there was no place to have the baby, that they found at least some place. There was some place there. And then after the baby was born, we know that the wise men came sometime after that and that, that the baby uh, parents were warned, hey, just as I told the Magi to go back to their country another way and not go back to Herod and report to him what was going on, I want you to get out of here and go to Egypt. And God sent an angel to them to tell them that. So God made sure that they had the information they needed and what they needed to get by at that time. But it was far less than you and I would have chosen. Again, it reminds us that the God of Christmas is not only the God of history and the God of action and the God who's sovereign and the God who's trustworthy, but he is the God of wonder. And again, this is especially why I said at the very beginning, I, I know I will not do justice to this. I don't, I don't think any of us can. When we begin to just try to contemplate and consider that the eternal, self-existent, creator of the universe sustainer of the universe, was willing to come to this earth as a human being and be born as a baby. 
How humbling, what condescension is that? That, that the one who created his mother would allow him to be snuggled by her. The one who spoke the universe into existence by his mere word now was going to, in a sense, not be able to speak a word until he was old enough to speak as a baby. The one who occupied the highest place of honor in the universe now comes and is literally lying in a feeding trough made for animals. That just, I just have to scratch my head. I go, wow, God. And yet, isn't it true that sometimes in our short little lives here on earth, we'll go through circumstances and we'll go, well, God, if you really loved me or cared about me, you'd see me in this circumstance that I'm in and I just don't know how I could be going through such a, such a circumstance and, and you still be the God that I think I know. Well, wait a minute. Do we not think about Christmas? Don't you think your God knows what it's like to basically have nothing and to go through hard times? Let's remember something. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, started out his life in a feeding trough, ended his life on a cross, and in between said, I have no place to lay my head. And yet somehow we think that our circumstances are, you know, beyond what God can comprehend and empathize with and sympathize with. God absolutely knows. Because he became one of us and the circumstances even surrounding his birth, we would, we would find horrific if we had to bring a child into the world the way Joseph and Mary did. We would find it awful. We would probably question God. God, why? And yet I love this. I love the simple faith of Joseph and Mary because notice too that Joseph and Mary did not try to make this all happen themselves because they realized they weren't in control but that God was. They didn't try to like make it happen and get down to Bethlehem and all that. They just let God have his way and let God begin to work on the hearts of those that were in leadership to get them down there because they didn't know exactly when they should be there and how long they should be there and all that. So they left it all up to the Lord and said, Lord, we're not going to stress over what is beyond us. We'll just be here and be ready to move when you move. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened. The God of wonder. Listen, one thing we know about this, verse 7, very simply, not a lot is said about the actual birth. It simply says, Mary gave birth while they were there to her firstborn son, wrapped him in strips of cloth, and laid him in a manger. Now, many people have made an emphasis about 
the strips of cloth, the, the swaddling cloth. But honestly, as I've done research and reading on this, many Jewish couples wrapped their babies in swaddling cloths. That, that was not necessarily unusual. I think what is significant is the Jews not only wrapped their babies in swaddling cloths, they wrapped their dead in swaddling cloths. In fact, Jesus, when he was an adult male and died on the cross, if you read the account, they basically wrapped him in strips of cloth and laid him in the tomb. They did that to keep the baby secure so that the baby wouldn't move around very much. Because there was no place for them in the inn. I want you to note something here at this point in the story. Our God is a God of wonder because whatever it takes, he does. Whatever it costs, he pays. Wherever he has to go, he goes. And whatever he has to bear, he bears. God is saying to us in the story of Christmas, I will go to whatever length I need to go to as God to find you, to have a relationship with you, to express my love to you. I will do whatever. That's a God of wonder. That's a God of wonder. And yet we also again read that phrase in verse 7, no place. Now, can I say something? I don't believe that the people of Bethlehem, or especially the innkeeper, was this mean person. Many times in, in the portrayals of the Christmas story, the, the innkeeper especially is, is portrayed as being this sort of malicious person that just sort of, you know, wouldn't make room for Jesus. And maybe they could have. But at least there was some place made room for them. I think it was just the fact that Bethlehem was this little town and now because of the decision of Caesar Augustus, the town swelled to 10 times its size filled with people and there just simply was no room anywhere for any of them all the inns and all the hotel rooms and all of those were already taken up and there was just simply no place else to put anybody that's just the way it was how I want us to apply this to our lives though is in this way just as there was no place for Jesus in a sense 2,000 years ago we can also come to a place in our life where there's no place for him too. Because like 2,000 years ago, there's all of this movement in our lives and we're moving here and moving there. We're going here and we're going there and we're coming and going and we're so busy and all of this and we're so involved in all these different things that Jesus Christ just seems to sort of be crowded out of our lives and we find no place for him. And that's a reminder to us that it's because you and I have to be very intentional about making room and making a place for Jesus in our lives each and every day. Amen. It's not just going to happen, friends. 
It, it's not like we automatically have a room and a place for Jesus in our lives every day because life comes at us from all these different directions and we're pulled in all these different directions and we, we need to go here and we need to do this and we need to be a part of this and we, and we can eventually begin to say yes to so many things that somehow the Lord of glory in our lives gets left out and you and I today, we need to say stop. I need to, pa- I need to make room for Jesus in my life which is one of the reasons why I felt so led this year, the first year that we're in our new building, to even have an extended Christmas series like I've never done before. Because as a church, I want us to know that every Christmas we will do our part to say to all of us, let's encourage each of us, let's stop during this time of the year, at least on Sundays and Wednesdays, and say, Jesus, this is about you. That this isn't about all this other stuff because all this other stuff doesn't fulfill and satisfy the longing of our heart. Only Jesus can do that, the bread of life who laid in that feeding trough in Bethlehem. You and I can fill our lives with anything and everyone else and anything else, but it will never hit the sweet spot of our soul and spirit. Only Jesus can do that. And if you and I are willing each and every day to taste and see that the Lord is good, then we'll be blessed. And we'll be able to bless others as well. So as a church, I just hope that not just at Christmas time, but every week that we will sort of keep each other accountable to say this church is going to be a church where we make room for Jesus. And that we're going to be intentional about it. We're not going to get caught up in all the other things that maybe other churches and and other people get caught up in. We're going to just make room for Jesus here. And we need to do that individually. And we need to do that as families. Because another year can go by and we're getting ready to step into 2020. And another Christmas season and Christmas can go by. And we can, in a sense, experience the same thing that they did in Bethlehem. Found no place. No room, because there were so many other things crowding out Jesus. Well, the God of Christmas is not only the God of history and action and sovereign and trustworthy and wonder, he's the God, because of all this, who's worthy of our worship. And because of that, I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to close our time in the Word and prayer, and we're going to spend some time worshiping the Lord who is worthy of our worship today. Father, I pray today that we would move, God, as you move. That we would take time, God, to pause, to worship you, the God of Christmas, the God who is willing to do whatever it takes to pay whatever it costs, to go wherever you have to go, to bear whatever you have to bear, to express your unbelievable love to each of us. God, you held nothing back. You laid everything out there for us. God, may we just lay everything on the altar for you today.
Lord, when the angel came to the shepherds, the story we're going to look at next Sunday, the angel said, I, I bring you good tidings of great joy. That's what the word Noel means. Good news that brings great joy. And God, we're getting ready to sing about that very thing. God, may we realize we have good news that brings great joy. No wonder the shepherds responded by saying, well, then let's go and see what God has done. God, may we be a people that want to come and see what you have done. That we might always, Lord, come to the Lord Jesus, drop to our knees, and worship you, recognizing, Lord, who you are in our lives. Give us a time, God, where we can really connect with you now and appreciate you and show you our love and our gratitude and our adoration, God, as we sing this song of praise and worship to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.